0: Morning, everyone. Morning. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen. A point of uh, logistical information, if you're not already aware, um, next Sunday, our brother Steve Pulley will be ministering to word to us from Isaiah chapter 53. So come prepared for that. What an incredible passage to hear from. But I'll be flying out Tuesday uh, to go to the Shepherds Conference in Los Angeles, California with John MacArthur and Paul Washer and Steve Lawson and Votie Bauckham. I'm extremely excited to sit under that type of teaching um, and come back a a fireball of energy for you all. (laughs) Well, if you take your Bibles and open them to 1 John chapter 5, The title of today's message is Eternal Life is Yours. I specifically chose that second person pronoun, yours, because I want this message to be personal. And when we think of today's culture, there are many words that we could use to describe this culture that we live and operate in. Perhaps uncertainty is clearly one that we could use for far too many around the world. Uncertainty even surrounds their own lives. Perhaps where the next meal will come from or the roof over their head. We see a lot of uncertainty for many over in Europe right now, do we not? But in all reality, we understand that uncertainty here as well. For others, maybe some of us even in the room, that uncertainty revolves around the direction of our country. Maybe it's the uncertainty of a marriage that's on the rocks. Perhaps it's the uncertainty of a job situation that has you perplexed. Or struggling with tension and anxiety. We know for some within our body. It's the uncertainty of a precarious health prognosis. We've all been there in some respects. As we succumb to the flesh. We begin to worry. We begin to fret. We begin to feel the weight of the pressure and the tensions, and the anxieties of many of these uncertainties. If left unchecked, they often lead to difficult circumstances, impeding our effectiveness in life, stealing, robbing our joy, in which God's word calls us to rejoice always. But uncertainty, unfortunately, at times, Distracts us from that. What about our spiritual outlook? Hopefully, these uncertainties are not distracting us from the absolute certainty that we all cling to, those of us that are in Christ. We are eternally secure in Christ. As believers, we're all awaiting our final and certain destination. We're nothing more than strangers and aliens passing through this land. One author, when writing of the great Christian scientist, Sir Michael Faraday, described an encounter during his last days. He said, when Faraday was dying, some journalist questioned him about his speculations for a life after death. He purportedly replied, speculations? I know nothing about speculations. I'm resting on certainties. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and because he lives, I shall live also. Amen? Quoting from the book of Job. There's a certain hope in a life to come, one that is absent of any uncertainty. Nevertheless, what about our Christian lives in the here and now? What about today? Even as we've discussed, specifically last week, certainly matters revolving around assurance of salvation and two weeks actually, not just last week, for the last two weeks, pertain to now, not just life after death. We've seen throughout, John wrote this letter so that believers might know that they have eternal life. Chapter 5, verse 13, we've repeatedly brought this verse up as a theme verse for the entire letter. Those who believe in the name of the Son of God, as the verse indicates. Or, to use our themes for the letter as a whole, those who have a proper belief, those who practice willful obedience, and those that operate in selfless love. Now, does this letter also serve to challenge those who are truly not in the faith? Of course it does. We've seen that in several of our messages, whether it be a contradiction of faith or the one message that we titled The Characteristics of a True Christian. Notwithstanding, the main purpose of this letter is to assure believers in eternal life. That said, what actually is Eternal life. The concept in all reality conveys much more than just an unendingness of time, if you will. But it speaks scripturally to a quality of life, not just the nature of time being unending. For example, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, many of you know the verse. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This free gift of God that serves to equip us and empower us to live here and now, not just for what we look forward to. What's more, in John chapter 17, verse 3, we read, and this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, this quality of life revolving around eternal life even relates to our knowledge of Christ. We see that even as we grow in our understanding of the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, our life becomes so much more fruitful, so much more full of joy and certainty as opposed to uncertainty. Moreover, on the flip side, there's a negative aspect of this quality, which Scripture represents as eternal death. In Revelation 20.10, we read, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There's an eternal aspect that is certainly negative revolving around a quality of life from that perspective. Or, speaking of those whom Jesus never knew, he states the following in Matthew 25, verses 41 and 46. He states, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into eternal punishment. So, once again, how was this idea of eternal life? Why was it significant for John to write about for these, these churches in Asia Minor? Why is it significant for us? The point is, is that whether it's Asia Minor or here us today... Or forevermore, until the Lord makes things right, uncertainty will abound. In a world that's stained with sin, we cannot escape it. In order to combat that, believers need an anchor. An anchor of certainty. And that said, There's no greater anchor of certainty than that of eternal life. Life for brothers and sisters in Christ. John wanted believers to know this and to live it. A life that knows Christ, that surpassing value that Paul talks about in Philippians. And then because of that knowledge, a life that operates in victory. Because of that, a life protected by a fortress of certainty against all of the uncertainty of this world, notwithstanding, if you're like me, which I know you are, we need to be reminded of that. This morning, we'll follow John's lead. As he intended to remind the original audience of the previous truths that he had already penned. This is another reason why I love expositional preaching. As I I came to prepare for this message, my mind was set that we would unpack several verses and I just couldn't do it. You look at one verse, chapter 5 verse 13. And John states, I write these things pointing back to what he had previously written so that you may know that you have eternal life. We have to review these things that encourage and assure us in the reality that we have eternal life. This is what he intended even when he pinned this verse to the original audience. When he states, I write these things, they would have known because they would have been reading through the letter all at one time. It's the theme verse, it's a summary reminder of how one knows he has eternal life. As for us, we'll turn that into our question for today How do you know you have eternal life? Three certainties should lead the way. Certainties that will summarize what you know. The title of the message. Eternal life is yours. Amen? Please stand with me. As we read this one verse... I feel bad because I don't know if it was last week or two weeks ago, but I stated that we only had two more messages. Well, now, now we only have two more messages after today. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. This is the word of God. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You may be seated. Our first certainty and reminder from the letter as a whole is, number one, the nature of God. And we've referenced that several times, even throughout. Last week, we gave a couple illustrations of people in our lives of whom we love and trust and let me repeat what we already know even those that are closest to us will inevitably let us down we know this no matter how much we love someone the flesh will get in the way will it not? There's no greater relationship when it comes to those in whom we love and trust on earth than that of a husband and a wife. I could never love another human being on this earth greater than my love for Christine. She's my rock apart from Christ. She's my best friend. Those of you who have spouses fully understand this. Paul Washer is quoted as saying, The marriage relationship is perhaps the greatest indicator of your sanctification. Why is that? Because, especially within the marriage relationship, no one knows you better than your spouse. The good, the bad, And the ugly, amen? Unfortunately. That said, how do we respond when things don't go well in a marriage? Without a doubt, those times are coming. If not, they're already here. It's who we are as we struggle in the flesh. Even though these are people who we love passionately. Hence, more often than not, it's the perfect opportunity for us to demonstrate our commitment to holiness. That's why Paul Washer states, there's no greater relationship on earth which demonstrates our sanctification. Or on the contrary, it demonstrates the danger in a life that's too horizontally focused on those in whom we love and trust. Even when people in general let us down, And they will, or our focus is too concerned with those failures, life is often rocked. Our confidence begins to wane. At times, we might even question God because of the uncertainty that we experience with man. In contrast, though, what have we seen concerning the certain and perfect nature of God? What are these things John is written about to these believers? And now the Holy Spirit in his word desires to illumine for you. Let's examine a couple of these reminders. Chapter 1, verse 2. John writes, and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. Now we unpack that in detail in that message. But with the article, the, and then eternal life, he's referencing Christ and the deity of Christ. It's important as he expounds upon his nature a couple of verses later in verse 5, chapter 1, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Or even a couple of verses later in verse 9 of chapter 1, he writes, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us. Our sins. We could go on in chapter 4 when he talks about the fact that God is love. So what's the significance of these reminders? John wants to remind them when he says, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. That God is light. That God is love. That God is pure. There is no darkness in him. As the writer of Hebrews states, it is impossible for him to lie. He does not change. Contrast that even with the people in whom we love the most. We fall short daily in those relationships. But yet God will never leave you, never forsake you because of his nature which is pure and true and genuine and right. When we're on the top of a mountain, it's certainly easy for us to affirm these things and say, God is good, my brother or my sister. What about in the valley, though? For the churches of Asia Minor, they were in a fight for truth. Even in the midst of a fight, a fighter at times can become discouraged and disheartened in the fight. Metaphorically speaking, regarding us and our lives, the uncertainties at time discourage us. Dishearten us. In our spiritual fight, we must remember the nature of God. There's no darkness in Him, He's only purposed good on your behalf. And even from a parental perspective, we understand that what's good for us is not always easy, is it not? I love Isaiah chapter 10. I've mentioned it before. Off and on throughout the, the pulpit ministry here. But in that chapter we see the account of the wicked king of Assyria, Assyria. Bearing down on God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. Within that chapter we see the Lord. Using the sinful actions of the king to accomplish good, not to mention to use that as a means of judgment upon his idolatrous people who were deserving of judgment. It wasn't a surprise to God. He was in complete control of those circumstances, even the sinful actions of men. I encourage you to read through that chapter. It's incredibly inspiring as you see the hand of God using the sinful heart of man to accomplish his purpose, which is always good, which is always pure, which is always light and true. A plan that will never contradict his nature. Even within Isaiah chapter 10, you hear the Assyrian king stating, That I will destroy these people. It was in his heart to do so. But yet God used that. To demonstrate his perfect and good plan and nature. And in the end of that chapter. Verses 20 and 21 demonstrate this. The prophet states. Now in that day the remnant of Israel. And those of the house of Jacob. Who have escaped Will never again rely on the one in who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. Do you see it? Could you imagine the uncertainty? That would have been amongst the nation of Israel as this nation is coming to wipe them off the face of the earth. None of us, in many respects, probably will never experience uncertainty like that. But yet, God, because of his nature, desired to bring forth the remnant. Desired to create a people who would never again, as the verse states... Rely on the one who struck them. He's good. He's pure. He's true. And he's only purposed good on your behalf. That's his nature. That said, when you're in the middle of your own Assyrian conflict, let us never forget eternal life is yours. Today and forevermore. Why is that the case? Because God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. He cannot lie, and beloved, He calls you a child of God. Hallelujah. He's your certainty in times of uncertainty. Do you believe it? Some days are better than others for us all. But that's never an excuse for us, myself included. What's more, since God is love and this is his nature, we can be assured of his love towards you. And this is our second certainty or reminder as a whole from this letter, and that's the love of God. The love of God. Look again at chapter 2, verse 1. John would have wanted them to be mindful of these truths concerning why they have eternal life. When he states, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, as we discussed in that message, not only do we have the best advocate or lawyer money could buy, so to speak, we have the judge as well. We stepped into the courtroom And no amount of guilty evidence could ever be brought forth to condemn you because your perfect advocate paid the price. You have been declared innocent, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. We called it in that message his perfect role on your behalf. Certainly an incredible demonstration of his love for you. What about his perfect sacrifice though? How does that communicate his love? Look at the next verse. Chapter 2 verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, let me return again to my wife again for illustration. It's a good thing she's not here. Nothing on earth compares to that specific and personal love from a natural perspective. It's different. It's not even the same as my love for my children or any of my dear brothers and sisters or friends or family members. Those of you that are married, you understand this. This by no means distracts from your love and your respect And the benefits that you bestow upon others. But it is clearly a distinctive, unique, special love. This is like the love that God has for you, brother and sister in Christ. He is your perfect advocate. In chapter 2, verse 2, this is what John intended to communicate a personal, a definite, and a perfectly efficient love for the sheep. What's more, why is this specific and definite love so encouraging and so significant? For the body of Christ. How does it help you. Know with even more certainty. That you have eternal life. John in his gospel chapter 10 verse 11. penned the words of Jesus when he said. I lay down my life for the sheep. Here in chapter 2 verse 2. John once again affirms this personal and intimate love. How does he do that? By proclaiming loud and clear that his propitiation or satisfaction or the removal of the wrath that you and I deserve has been perfectly accomplished for his sheep. For who? Not just for the Jewish people, but for people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation from the whole world. Moreover, and this is incredibly encouraging, not just for a potential mass of humanity, but a people who God had actually chosen to experience this redemption. In John's letter, in Revelation, he described them as those who had been written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Friends, it's important for us to understand that when Christ Went to the cross to make atonement for sin. He did not say, It is possible. He said, It is finished. Do you feel and see and hear the encouragement of the perfect, precise word of God designed? For you brother and sister in Christ. In John's gospel chapter 17 verse 9. Jesus said the following. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. But of those whom you have given me. For they are yours. Whose behalf did he ask on? Those whom the father had given him. And you know what, beloved? That's you. That's special. That's definite. That's accomplished. And that's perfectly designed love on your behalf. That's how we know. We have eternal life with certainty. When he went to the cross, he specifically, intimately, and perfectly was thinking of you. In addition to a specific and perfect love, It's a love that's designed to set you apart. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. Now, I mentioned this in our message on this section, but There's a sense in which this love is otherworldly. I stated something along the lines that we could say that the true aliens of this world are not from outer space, but are born again believers in Jesus Christ. We're in this world, but we're not of it. because of that we can take comfort when we traverse through a slough of despond to use pilgrim's progress again much like the character christian in pilgrim's progress there are deep bogs or swamps throughout all of our journeys of life which certainly create uncertainty. Stress, tension, anxiety. Listen to how Bunyan described the slough of despond or the swamps or the bogs that we all experience at times. He said, This miry slough is such a place as cannot be mended. It is the descent, whither the scum and filth that attends conviction for sin does continually run. And therefore it is called the slough of despond. For still as the sinner is awakened about his lost condition, there arises in his soul many fears and doubts and discouraging apprehensions. Some of you may even be there right now. If not, every single one of us have been there. Which all of them got together and settled in this place and this is the reason of the badness of this ground. The slough of the spawn. Nevertheless, find your hope, Christian And the rest, that you're different and that you're called to be set apart and that God has actually, according to his sanctifying love, equipped you at times to walk around the swamp. And when you fall in, to escape it. I love that verse in Hebrews chapter 10 as my mind thinks upon it. When the writer says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's you, dear brother and sister in Christ. God in his sovereignty chose to bestow his special sanctifying, setting apart love on you. A perfect love, as John states in chapter 4, that what? Casts out all fear. Rest in that. It's a love that personally and specifically was designed for you in eternity past. And a love that will continue to sustain you in eternity future. Amen? Amen? This is how we know we have eternal life. With that said though, at times, even when we know these truths, there are times when we just don't feel strong enough to live it. We need something more. We need to remember the awesome and mighty power of God. And that's the third reminder or certainty. The power of God. Turn over to chapter 2 again. We'll look at verses 13 and 14. You'll recall that when John references the young men here, that he desired to encourage this audience in the power of God. That said, you'll recall in these two verses, 13 and 14 of chapter 2, he uses three different distinctions. Young men and fathers and children. As we read through these again, I want to examine the power behind the young men. Don't forget, as we unpack in that message, if you do not consider yourself a young man or a young woman... Here today, this passage still applies to you. It reflects all believers all the while allowing for different levels of chronological or spiritual maturity. So when we read the power behind the young men, understand if you are a believer in Christ, whether young, old, middle-aged, whatever it may be, this is you. Look again at verses 13 and 14 concerning the young men. He writes in verse 13, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then in verse 14, he says, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. John wants them all to understand, appreciate, and embrace the reality by the grace of God that they have overcome the evil one, that they are strong, and that the word of God abides in them. With that said, let's review each of these benefits again. First off, is this verb to overcome? It actually conveys a sense in the original language of a a militaristic victory. And you guys know me by now how much I like that kind of stuff. In a sense, we're all like warriors in the midst and in the heat of the battle. And unfortunately, at times, we feel as though we're fighting a losing one. Satan is indeed a roaring lion seeking to devour and destroy us. But, oh, beloved, we fight for the warrior king himself the one who has already overcome sin and death. We are more than conquerors because we serve the king who reigns. John said it as such in chapter 5 verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. Beloved, you have been born of God you will overcome the world. That's how we know we have eternal life. That's how we live with stability in a world full of instability. And secondly, he mentions that they're strong. This verb's all about the ongoing spiritual fortitude of a believer. You will overcome the evil one and the uncertainty of this world. Why is that the case? Because God has purposed it to be. As we've seen in chapter 4, greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. And we'll get to that he here in a second. Now, does that mean that the warrior... Because we serve the warrior king himself, Christ Jesus, and the victory has already been won, does that mean that the warrior rests upon his laurels? Because the victory is won, let it never be. We're warriors, we're fighters, we're strong. Paul stated as such in Ephesians 6, 10 and 11. He said, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then finally, the word of God abides in you. You'll recall that this word abide pertains to never leaving, always remaining within us. It was the imperishable seed of the word of God that was implanted within your soul that by the Spirit of God drew you unto salvation. It is that same Spirit that abides in you, that sanctifies you, and empowers you to be victorious. Jesus said in John 17:17, 17, 17, "Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth." You are strong, brother and sister in Christ. So still one more overarching certainty and a reminder from the letter as a whole, it's often said that a good preaching must get to the second person pronouns. The yous. Or the your. Why is that the case? Because it's personal. That said, in many respects, perhaps, this last certainty is the power behind it all. Why is that the case? Because it's the most personal. And that's number four. The spirit of God is how you know that you have eternal life. Let's look again at a couple of these reminders that John has penned. These things that he has written chapter 2, verse 20, we read, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know, and you all know. And then in verse 27, he writes, As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you abide in him. Chapter 3, verse 24, he writes The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Chapter 4, verse 4, he communicates the reality that, as we just stated, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. This is how we overcome the world. This is how we cling to certainty in the midst of instability and uncertainty. And then last week, we examined the testimony of the Spirit from chapter 5, verses 6 and 12. The certainty that the Spirit confirms his testimony, seals his testimony, and then reveals his testimony. So why is this certainty so helpful in the Spirit of God? He's a person. He dwells within you in a personate, personal and intimate way that is beyond compare. Objectively and subjectively, he confirms that you are an heir of the King. What's more, as we discussed last week, he's your divine tutor and an IEP, if you recall. That connection of an individualized educational program for students who are in need of assistance. The correlation for us being students, all brothers and sisters in Christ, in need of divine tutoring. And we called it the Illumination Educational Program, if you recall. Well, that said, as we draw to a close, I want to use this IEP acrostic again. We know what it stands for regarding our illustration an illumination educational program. We have the author and the creator of the assignment shining a light upon the truth of his word, indwelling us. Nevertheless, let's picture it from another perspective. In the same way that a cattle rancher would brand his cattle with a hot iron. God, the Holy Spirit, has placed his branding on you. In the same way that no one could ever remove or question whose cattle that is, such is the case for you with the Spirit's seal. You're part of the Illumination Educational Program. IEP branding, if you will. A branding that's sealed in the courts above. A branding that reveals today and forevermore the one who has the Son has the life. Confirmed, sealed, and revealed in every ounce and fiber of your being. Eternal life is yours, brother and sister in Christ. And you know what? You can be absolutely certain of that. Bow with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. It never ceases to amaze as we plumb the depths of understanding and sanctification that flow forth from it. Lord, as we rest in the certain truth that we are eternally secure and washed by the blood of the Lamb, forever destined to be in fellowship with You, would You cause us to be men and women that live with a sense of certainty? Even though we fall short, O God, Every day, by your grace and by the power of the Spirit that indwells us, we can rest in the truth of your sanctifying and one day glorifying word. In the mighty and precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the warrior King himself, we pray.